We are I. Okay, so Bridget, as I was just explaining, I'm just going to barrage you with a with a ton of uh, questions and stuff today. And we were just talking about whether or not you wanted to share your experience that you're going through with your daughter, you know, right now or pre yeah. last couple of weeks, regards getting tested for COVID nineteen. And I appreciate you wanting to be able to talk about it. And the number one reason why is because I ask everybody if they know anybody who's got COVID nineteen, and I would say. 99 out of 100 people that I ask don't know anybody. So then there was a big part of me that was always like, okay, well, if nobody knows anybody that's had this, where are the people who have it? But now I'm kind of leaning a little bit more towards because I also know a lot of people who get tested who don't want to know or don't want to tell anybody they've got tested or don't want anybody to know just because they don't want to be perceived to having it or had concerns they don't be become like a social pariah so then i was like well maybe there is a lot of people who have had it but just nobody's talking about it so i don't really know where i actually sit on that because again you'll never really know it's just a feeling i started getting but um you know maybe like like walk us through like in, initially like you know like why did you decide to get tested why did you decide to test your daughter what was the how long did it take what was the experience like did you go with the nose swab or the sail or like the a salty solution that i believe you swirl the mouth like what kids are doing up here is the same thing down there walk us through the whole experience okay so my daughter entered kindergarten this year and she is extremely extroverted and loves being around friends. So we decided we had the choice as to whether to send her in person or virtual and being five, we chose to send her in person. And so she's really, really good about wearing her mask. I'm really confident that the school that we chose for her is doing everything they can to keep the environment safe for the kids and um, and still keep the environment kid-like. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a fine balance for any institution to achieve. And um, two weeks ago, she I, I actually had my book launch and um, through Northshire Bookstore and I was interviewed by a local news person. And um, that went really well. And I got home and she's on the couch with a fever. And so, you know, uh, of course, COVID's your first thought, but intuitively I knew that, that it wasn't that. My brain cannot possibly wrap its head around how with all the safety precautions we've taken throughout these months and how well the school has been, um, managing keeping everyone safe she could possibly have caught anything but anyway that's beside the point so she, she's also somebody who used to get fevers a lot when she was a baby so um, it wasn't new for us and we figured it would pass in a day or two and she'd be fine which is exactly what ended up happening that was a Monday night and by Tuesday night she was you know Tylenol free with no fever and so um, so 
the, in order to go back to school though, the policy is that you need to have a negative COVID test result and you need to have um, a doctor's note. And because I'm in the clinic every single day working with people, since my daughter was symptomatic, even though intuitively I knew it wasn't it, I still ended up canceling the entire week of work. Um, because- the impact then that has then? It's a, it's a good thing like you brother, because it's, it's something that I do know, um, you know, like just what I'm talking about is that like everybody that I know that has got that just like the seasonal flu, common cold that's going around, it's like, like you said, like your intuition knows this is the same thing that happens every year. But even yeah. like over like last week when I had like a little bit of like rhinos, a little bit of cough and like there was no other symptoms like except for that. I'm like, well, these could be technically the symptoms. Yeah. But I'm like, I'm like, Blake, every year, this is exactly yeah. the same time. Exactly. A month preceding this, you know, like we all talked about this happening, but like yeah. your logic just goes out the door. Right. Well, the problem now is because it's so multi-layered, you know, it's not just like I could have taken her to the pediatrician and gotten a rapid result test. First of all, the rapid result tests we have here are, are even less reliable than the nasal swabs. So like the public school system in our area just set out a notice that they're not even accepting the rapid response tests. That's how inaccurate they are. Oh, wow. and, so, and in addition to that, the only facility in the area that does them, you have to actually go into the building as opposed to um, going into a drive through where you don't even get out of your car. Yeah. And so, you know, the thought of going into a rapid testing site, going into the building in an area where there's actually a couple of clusters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so there's probably people that have been in and out with COVID. It wasn't like really appealing anyway. So we ended up doing the drive through site, but the process is that, so we had to go to the doctor Tuesday morning and that's very stressful for everyone because everyone in the office just has to behave as if somebody COVID positive is coming through the door. And so, um, and then they have to have the, a whole extra protocol if they suspect a COVID kid was in the room for, for cleaning the room. I think they have to seal it up for a while and all that. Um, and so then you see the doctor and then um, the doctor's office has to fax the testing center a request and then whenever however long it takes for that to happen and for however long it takes for the testing center to process it then the testing center calls you you have to be able to take their call when they call and then you schedule the test from there and so uh -huh. the test could be like the next day two days later who knows and so then you do that you schedule the test and then you go for the test and hopefully there's not a spontaneous freak thunderstorm like there was for us where there was a lightning strike and they had to close. Um, it was just so ridiculous. Like the second we were leaving the house, there was a thunderstorm. I'm like, this is just more confirmation that she, this isn't what it is. Yeah. But um, I had scheduled up a test for both of us um, just to be on the safe side. And so we went and finally got tested. And then when you go to the testing site, they tell you it can be five to seven days. So now it's 3.50 on Wednesday afternoon. I've already missed Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday from work. And they're telling me now it could be sometime in the middle of the following week. 
And so top of that, you know, so you're almost, you're almost two weeks into just finding out whether you have it. And then presumably you might have to wait another two weeks after that. Right. Which is also the irony of it is because it took two weeks and you had the positive result, which you got seven to 10 days before. Probably if you had COVID, it would have been a couple of days probably before that. You've already waited the two weeks, but you have to wait the two weeks after the fact. But you've already kind of by proxy waited the two weeks, just how long the whole process has took. Uh, Unless you're Donald Trump and then you can just, you know, have a gathering at your house three days later. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, so, um, so yeah, that's exactly what you're facing. And so luckily my results came in on Friday. So I knew I, they came in sooner than what they said at the testing site they would. So, and my doctor's office is really good about calling you right away. So I knew Friday that mine was negative. So I didn't have to cancel the following week. And, but we, but we still like out of good conscience couldn't, even though she was completely fine, um, we couldn't like not be quarantining Calliope because we still hadn't had her test results. So then I'm like, oh my God, we just sat trapped in the house all week yeah. <laughs> with a kid who's not even sick anymore. And now we're gonna have to keep her in all weekend. And luckily I was able to get a hold of a nurse on Saturday afternoon and she told us that hers came back negative too. Oh wow. And then, they have to, then they have to fax that to the school and then you can go back to school. So it's a huge fiasco. And that's if the child has absolutely any symptoms at all. Like it's up to their discretion if they come in with a sniffle or a cough or a sneeze, they can theoretically, legally be sent to the nurse and sent home. And then we have to go through the whole thing again. So it's not just that she had a fever at home, it's that anything that transpires can can be viewed as a symptom and um, and, Therefore, then you need to get tested again. It's just a complete nightmare. It's not. It's not how do you live life like that? Like how how is that sustainable? Like like that is not a solution for anybody anywhere. Or like you know, like just the financial impact. You know, from like you right. taking a week off work when you wouldn't have to, and, and no other year, arguably, you probably ever would have done that based on the same set of circumstances. Uh-huh. You know, but like any with that, and like you said, just like the duration of time it takes, you know, like all the steps and hoops and hurdles you have to jump through to like just that kind of gross like efficiency. And this, you can see why people wouldn't even want to do this, especially if you've done it once, just knowing you'd have to try to go through it again or think of how many times a family may have to do that over a standard like cold and flu season, you know, especially what if you have more than one child? Right. You know, exactly. like there's all those then, things. That- then you test the one child, and then if they come back positive, then you got to test everybody else. And you know, it's not nice for kids to get um, Q-tips stuck up in their nose. Like we were lucky that it wasn't the really long one that goes all the way back. It was just like you know went up to like here, oh. and it had some kind of a solution on it. And it that solution burned her nostrils, but mine were okay with it. You know, it's uncomfortable, it's awkward, but for a little kid, it's it's scary. Yeah, very much so. So you guys don't have like that solution that you can just rinse your mouth with and spit in that. Cause we have something like that. I actually don't know exactly. I just, I know there's like a solution that younger children can put in their mouth, they swish and they spit it back into this cup and then they test that cup. They're doing this nasal swab for the, for the test that gets sent out to get tested in the lab. They do the nasal swab for everybody. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. At least right now here. I mean, really the pediatrician's office should have it because that would have like nipped it in the bud. But the tests need to be reliable too, right? So um, they're not, <laughs> no matter what one you get. And so nothing's 100%, but yeah, it's hugely disruptive. Um, and then if you're in a situation like me where you work with people that you don't want to expose to anything, um, it's, it's a problem. Um, which brings me back to, to a, a point that I was going to bring up that you kind of just briefly touched on there is that like how do you feel about even going even though it's kind of like a semi um, you know like kind of not like legally you know but like it's kind of like semi mandatory mandatory in some situations um, but with how inaccurate like all these tests are like it's widely criticized that it's sometimes kind of even pointless going getting in these tests done because how notoriously inaccurate they are like where do you sit on that like just you know like essentially even if you guys got a negative result it doesn't necessarily mean that it was negative because of how inaccurate these these tests are like like how do you do you feel like a lot of this is just completely superficial like do you do you have I, mean, I just think it's not 100 percent accurate i mean i think it's definitely one way that you can like rule it out to some extent but I have two patients that are COVID long haulers, they're calling it, or they, that they have long COVID, however you want to say it. And neither of them tested positive to begin with. And um, the one of them who had the antibody testing in time didn't even test positive for the antibodies. So, you know, there are people that are getting really sick and staying really sick and having their internal organs affected by this. And they're not even testing positive out the gate. So, um, and that's with multiple tests over the course of weeks. So it's, it, you know, it's not fail safe by, by any stretch of the imagination, but can it help? Sure, because you're catching at least, you know, maybe 60 or 80, I'm not sure what the percentage of accuracy is on the tests, but you're catching, the yeah. majority of the people it, that will even go and get tested because then, like you mentioned, there is potentially this stigma um, that some people might be perceiving that are afraid that they have, you know, COVID and that they're going to be judged for it harshly. Um, and so they may not even go get tested. Mm -hmm. um, that's well, see, and even like up here, like our school. So like, cause we were, you were briefly touching on like talking about um, like your daughter at school. So like, you can have like a like a sniffly nose and a minor cough up here uh, with children going to school because they've deemed that here um, not to be problematic. So like you, right. your child can still go. Um, but I know two weeks ago, like when my daughter was home from school the entire week almost, you know, and not that she really needed to be, you know, but it's more, the, now they have all these options for going online. So it's like, well, you might as well keep, but like there was out of the 25 kids in her class, um, 13 of them were at home and stuff, yeah. you know, but they all went back within this same week and not all of them went and got, you know, tested because they were simply just because they felt the criteria still being able to go, you know, so everybody just kind of kept, you know, like the kids home for like a yeah. couple of days and then sent them back when they felt better. Usually what would happen at this time of year, every single year and stuff, but it's just I, like, I just highlighted because the differences between, you know, obviously Western Canada and Eastern United States, you know, where there's just like these massive differences, because that is something that like, you know, like I keep seeing is, which is so challenging behind this is that there's just this 
fluency in like what is accurate, this fluency in like what is important, this fluency in like what people should do. You know, I don't know if you just seen the WHO, um, just like Redesivir, I can't ever say it properly, but they just said that it's completely like ineffective. Johnson Johnson a couple weeks ago, like stopped those trials because they've been having those adverse side effects with like, uh, so like there's just all of these things like come into play, you know, with this. And my, my point that I'm trying to make is where do you now sit and understanding this more now and seeing all this anecdotal evidence that um, do you think that it was something that was manufactured or do you think that this is something completely like biological that was just created over time or do you think it was manufactured in a lab because there's just so much inconsistency to it and like I don't know if we've ever scrutinized anything to this degree to understand there might be this kind of inconsistency you know in all types of coronaviruses but like this one just seems to have so much conjecture to it and just simply geographically where you live um, plays like a huge part in it. Um, like, how do you feel about it? Like, just everything you know now, do you think this was kind of manufactured in a lab or do you think this is something that's just a homegrown human um, coronavirus? Well, I've never worked in a lab, so I don't know how easy it is for something to get out. Um, but I would imagine that it's, it's certainly possible and plausible that it was something that, they, that could have been being worked on. Um, I don't see why not. We certainly have the technology to develop such a thing. So, um, I, you know, I've, I've, I don't know. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. Like one of the things that um, oftentimes has defined the precursor, the, the preliminary conditions for um, a, a, an epidemic to to happen, to emerge in the Chinese canon is that um, there is the same type of winter and spring that we had this year. And so, oh. um, so that, you know, timing wise, it was either coincidentally perfect timing or it was a natural occurrence. Mm -hmm. um, the way, what it's doing, I, I'm not so sure how typical, like once it gets in the body, what it does, I'm not sure how typical of coronaviruses that is. My understanding prior to this one was that they were uh, like upper respiratory infections. Mm -hmm. This is obviously not that. So it's, it's an epithelial cell lining infection. Mm -hmm. So it gets into what, the lungs when you breathe it it goes through the air sacs into the capillaries and then it begins whatever it's going to do and spreads. So it's spreading through the, the walls of the blood vessels. Um, so yeah, that's very different. And yeah, are my, are, is my curiosity raised? Do I suspect that it, it was something that could have been manufactured? Of course. I think that anyone that, you know, thinks um, would would come across that thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not decided either way. I don't have any proof um, either way of of what it is. But you know, either way, we we have faced epidemics for millennia, and um, this one is in some respects probably no different. Um, we'll we really need to wait and see the the course that it takes. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess this kind of is like a, a good segue into something we were talking about before, where, um, 
you know, like, because this has the potential to be manufactured, you know, and like whether or not we want to fully commit to sing on one side of the fence or the other, like there's the potential to it. Um, we also know that like a lot of our food is all coated in all these um, different chemicals. Um, you know, like we just know there's a lot of foreign things, you know, like, like brake dust, you know, entering our bodies when you have a window open, you're in a city, you know, like there's pollution from cars, like there's all these different foreign compounds that are just inundating our body all the time. Like every day, like you can't escape it. And now right. we might be creating things to compound that effect. Like, um, what do you think like is going in our bodies, like with, in regards to our immune system, because we talked about this, um, before we started recording is that one of the techniques that they're using to help treat the coronavirus is, um, immunosuppressant drugs, which is because they think that there's too much of an immune response, um, you know, going on, but yeah because our immune system is just being under attack all the time. Um, do you think that like, like our immune system, we should be manipulating it in any kind of way? Like, do you think that this is something positive that we're doing is by immune, these offering these immune suppressant? Drugs? I don't know when into the course of the illness they're offering the immunosuppressants. Um, my understanding originally was that it was when they, thought somebody was going into a cytokine storm mm -hmm. that would kill them. Yeah. Um, but if they're offering them prophylactically at this point, I'm not sure that's the best idea either. See, and, and a thing too is I think it depends on what country you're in and then what part of the country you might be in and like what somebody's personal beliefs may be. But I heard, did hear about the cytokine storm. That's when they were offering like initially, I don't know how much they varied away from that. You know, like my, the big thing is though, is if, if we trust our body, if our body, if we trust our body knowing that it's doing what it's doing for a specific purpose, like, why would we step in the way of that? Like, you know, even if we now look at it as to be like extremely harmful to the body or, you know, like we understand like the impacts of it, like this is still what the body thinks that it should be doing. And if we look at it from what I say, like a, a TCM standpoint or Ayurveda standpoint, that we want to complement what the body wants and we want to help right. it to do what it wants to do not like a Western approach where we're like, we know better. So we're going to stand in the way. Um, like what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Um, I would say that, you know, my initial thought is that sometimes the body gets confused. And I think that that's what's happening with that cytokine storm. The body thinks that it's supposed to be doing, you know, what it's doing and more and more and more because that's what it knows. And that's what it is programmed to do. And it just goes overboard on some people. Um, and it, that's something that's talked about in Ayurveda is, is that there, there can be a confusion. The cells can get confused. Um, and that's why we want to eliminate ama and toxins as much as possible from our lifestyle um, and, and from our bodies as much as possible because um, we want to eliminate anything that can contribute to that confusion. And an autoimmune response is a, is a confusion. Mm -hmm. So then, like, how do you feel like this ties into the health of our skin? You know, because we put so much junk like on our skin and our skin is exposed to so many pollutants and to toxic toxins now, but like our skin um, also has the ability to be able to understand what's going on in our environment and potentially offer um, an enhanced killer T response. Um, for, and correct me if I'm wrong. Um, 
that if we didn't live in the environments we have, like, do you think that our body would naturally be as confused? Like, where do you think the confusion starts? And this is kind of where I'm going with all this is that we, we offer our body hundreds of confusing states all the time. And then we compound this one on top of it. But where does the confusion start? Like, is, is the confusion a little bit more environmental? Because if, if we weren't exposed to all these like harmful toxins that our skin is exposed to, we'd have the potential to offer more um, killer T cells so that when something like the COVID-19 entered the body, we might have a better line of defense fighting against it. You know, is it the food we're putting in our body? So our immune system is so confused about whether I'm trying to fight off like these toxins, through these chemicals that you're putting into it. So, you know, we're overtaxed and we can't do this COVID-19 thing properly. Like, or is it a combination of it all? Is it so confusing, so complex? We don't really know. Like, I'm just, because obviously we all want to start with kind of like where, where's the start of us? Like, what should I be doing? Like, obviously we all know we should be taking more vitamin D now. I think it's pretty widely accepted. You know, do we now focus on skin health to offer our body having an opportunity to be able to produce more killer T cells? You know, is this the time? Like, obviously we know we all want to eat healthier, but eliminating, you know, a lot of like the crap that we're putting in our bodies to be able to help with all these things. Um, like just throw, throw something at me here. Like, I think you can kind of see where I'm going with this conversation, but yeah, throw in your two cents. Well, I think a huge place that it gets confused is when we haven't, a dysbiotic or or an imbalance in our microbiomes and there's a connection between the skin and the intestines um, there's there's quite a, a clear communication network between the skin and the gut and that plays a role in our immunity and so you know we've recognized this from an eastern medicine perspective and uh, researchers are, are looking into it now, trying to understand how it works. But um, yeah, I think addressing skin health is vitally important. I think addressing our getting outside, actually looking up at the sky, letting some sunlight hit our eyes, hit our skin, um, and addressing our lifestyles that are so out of whack, addressing how much we're on a screen, um, addressing our diet so that we can cultivate our gut microbiome. And then there are practices to cultivate the skin microbiome as well. Ayurveda has a lot of um, oleation therapies or, or putting oil on the skin because the oil is a prebiotic for beneficial microbes um, and regulation, uh, recommendations for what not to put on the skin that comes out of Eastern medicine, common sense and Western science. Um, so I think, uh, you know, there can be gen genetic factors and whether those are turned on or off by the microbiome or by something else. Um, you know, that genetic piece definitely plays a role. But uh, I believe a large role is played by the microbiomes in the body. What are some of the things that like, you know, people can do like at, at this time, if we're looking at just creating like a better uh, microbiome on the skin, healthier skin, you know, and then having the trickle down effect of like, what are some of the things that we'd be looking for or should be doing or, you know, like noticing about your skin, like what kinds of oils might be beneficial at this time in regards to COVID-19 um, for healthy skin, um, fill us in a little bit. 
Um, I mean, you could use pretty much any whole pure oil. I generally avoid um, processed vegetable oils like canola oil or vegetable oil or soybean oil or whatever. I stick to sesame oil, coconut oil, um, uh, sunflower oil, olive oil, of course, good olive oil. And um, those are oils that you can put on your skin. You can go into any health food store and you can find the massage oil section and pick out an oil. A lot of them have some essential oil added to them now, so they smell nice. Mm -hmm. But you could use oil on your skin as, as a replacement for putting on some kind of a lotion when you get out of the bath or shower. Um, Ayurveda has this dry brushing that we do. So it's when you take these silk gloves and you basically rub your skin. It's like um, using a loofah, only use a silk glove. And it's a much uh, gentler on the skin and it also creates like a static charge. And so you rub the skin with this silk glove and that helps to stimulate the lymphatic system and it helps to, of course, shed dead skin cells. And it makes it helps to start softening the skin, bringing more circulation to the surface of the skin. And then from there, you could also do a self-oil massage called Abhyanga, which is a process that takes about a half an hour in total. And um, you could incorporate that into your routine once a month or once a week. Um, some people do it at night before they go to bed so that they sleep better if they have trouble sleeping. So it's, um, those are things that we can do, things that we can avoid are, are any products that have artificial ingredients in them, preservatives, artificial fragrances. Those are all things that are not great for the microbiome. Um, the other thing is underarm deodorants. So finding something that is more natural that works for you that's more natural um, so that you're not killing off the beneficial microbes in that part of the skin yeah that actually is like because i know is is i have zero like science to be able to back. it's just something because i actually don't like wearing uh deodorant <laughs> and I, I especially don't wear guys deodorants i think like that guys deodorant has more perfumes and more junk because they're trying like mask you know made this more masculine like order and all kind of stuff so um i use like secret for women but i only put it on like just like one stripe like every like two or three days because i actually don't like wearing it and i find like that is like a system that kind of works for me i i know it's still not good um you know but it's just like i look at it as like okay well instead of like going you know like a bunch of times every single day if i'm only just doing like whatever two or three days at least i'm cutting down on it um, but I actually don't like wearing that stuff like at all. Um, is there anything like natural like suggestions? Because I know that they have like those crystals or stones yeah. or something like that, right? Is that the is that the best option or what are some other? Um, that's an option. I mean, nothing is going to keep you from sweating mm -hmm. because it's not supposed to. <laughs> yeah, We're and not... I don't wear it for like an sweating <laughs> perspective. Like I sweat like crazy all like all the time, multiple times. I just because I'm so so active. I used to be very self-conscious about sweating, but I crossed that bridge a long time ago and stuff. It's more just like a smell thing where obviously just like everybody else, you get self-conscious about body odor and stuff. So um, like what are, what are some of the other ones besides like those crystals that you've come across that you find to be effective? Um, there are sprays that you can get that have, uh, there's this, the salt crystal companies make sprays as well. 
and they usually have essential oils in them. Um, so you just want to be mindful that you're using something from a reputable company that isn't adding too much essential oil to it because that's not great either. Mm -hmm. And that, that brings me back to a point I was going to make too about like the lotions and oils to put on the skins. Now, besides the obvious, like the, you know, like the chemical based ones or like the, um, the artificial fragrances and all kind of stuff, like what would be something that we might possibly run into like like we just said too much essential oil you know isn't necessarily beneficial either like what are some of the things that we might perceive to be natural or healthy or beneficial but they're actually not or you know like like in very low doses is there anything like that that we should be like aware of um just to make sure that i would say that i mean the the one thing would be essential oils um because people put them directly on their skin a lot of the time and um, that's not always the greatest thing in the world because it can be an irritant. And if it's antimicrobial, then it's going to kill microbes indiscriminately. And a lot of times people that are wearing a lot of essential oils, they build up a tolerance to it. So they can't even really smell it on themselves. And they're using a lot because of that. Yeah. And you know, there, there are many, reasons not to do that um it it can like if you're somebody that has a, a a a survivor of a particular type of breast cancer then you shouldn't be around lavender essential oil for example or if you are about to go out in the sun you shouldn't be slathering yourself with citrus oil because it increases hypersensitivity to the sun and you can get a bad burn um so those are just a couple of examples of why you wouldn't want to overdo it. And they do, you know, change the chemicals that get secreted from the brain into the body. And if you're overdoing it with them, what I've found in people is that it creates more of a vata imbalance or that it makes people um, a little less grounded um, mm -hmm. because they're, they're just, it's, it's sort of like elevating and uprooting and um, maybe not in the best way all the time. Yeah. So what's your stance of like the essential oils that um, have different fragrances or different um, blends to them that are supposed to represent the different chakras? Like, like um, there's like, there's essential oils that are like the, that are obviously directly connected or like blended to be able to represent like the different chakras on the body. Is there validity behind that? Or is that a marketing thing? Or um, like, what's your, what's your take on that? I don't think that the original yogis who were seriously investigating their chakras were had any awareness of or were using essential oils. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's it's something that we've all just kind of, no, we all, that's something that's just been manufactured now because we need to associate it like a smell with a, a concept or idea. It may be that, I mean, I'm not saying that there is not some therapeutic benefit to it. And I'm not saying that there can't be a, a therapeutic benefit to the particular issues that you want to work with that are associated with a specific chakra that are associated with specific oil. That's altogether possible, sure. I mean, there are a lot of lovely practitioners who have a very deep, um, intuitive, and um, scientific, scientifically minded enough to respect the power and the potency of the oils to be able to blend them effectively for people. Um, 
so you know that's altogether possible but by and large i mean if if you're working on a specific issue and you are finding or you feel that it's attached to um wanting to clear a chakra then having an oil that says that it's for that is going to probably help you to focus your intention even better for doing that so um you know it's everybody resonates with different things and smell is one of the primary modes of um of healing and so there's no reason not to use it it's just using it in in a balanced fashion that that's important yeah like and like you said you know there's even i guess like the placebo effect to be able to to jump in there too just you know, if you put on something that represents the heart chakra and it smells a certain way and it connects you a little bit more in that regard and you get a little bit of placebo effect from it too, I, I guess we might have to take that into consideration as well. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try this again. Panchakarma? Uh-huh. Throw into it. So again, we're talking like di digestion now. I know I kind of just like abruptly switched gears there, but um, okay. I, I know that I <laughs> have a ton of stuff that I want to talk to you about today. And we were talking about just uh, potentially being skinny on time for all the things that I said that I wanted to, uh, to talk about. But uh, flow us through it, you know, because a lot of people I don't think properly understand digestion and like the actual track of digestion. I know in your book, you made a great reference to, you know, like what the, the way your daughter kind of explained it. Um, but a lot of people, I don't even think, understand that it's actually a closed system that your digestive tract is essentially outside of your body. It just happens to be housed inside of your body. Right. So, yeah. The, so, panchakarma means five actions. And panchakarma is associated, it's, it's a branch of Ayurvedic medicine that's associated with rejuvenating the body at a cellular level. And there's a whole process to doing that. And in the last chapter of the book, I explore a preparatory process for that called Purva Karma, which is what you do to prep yourself mentally and physically for the Pancha Karma, which is a series of intensive practices and therapies that you could potentially be administered um, in, a, in a Pancha Karma setting. Um, the digestive tract is what we use in Purva Karma to start clearing toxins from the system so that in Pancha Karma, they can be completely eliminated and then the body can rejuvenate itself sort of from the ground up. And so um, with, with uh, Pancha Karma or Purva Karma, the idea is that you want to grab on to the toxins that are in the distal tissues, that are in the tissues that are outside and away from the actual GI tract and pull them into the GI tract for elimination. So the GI tract is considered a more superficial aspect of the body. It is connected to the outside on both ends, through the mouth and through the anus. So there are openings to the outside world. So it's not like it's, it's as internal, it's not as internal as um, say your liver or your kidneys, right? So those are, there's no way to access those except, you know, through some kind of surgical means. Um, 
Whereas with the stomach and the small intestine and the large intestine, you can access those just through their openings um, to the outside world. So therefore they interact more with the outside world than the, the deeper internal organs do. <clears throat> and do you think there, there's an enhanced interaction between the skin and the gut? Because obviously like, the skin has the most interactions, the biggest organ on the body. It has the most surface area that's going to be, have the most interaction. And then you have like, you know, obviously um, like lengthwise, you know, like obviously like the intestinal tract is going to be. You know, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so like, um, like how, how are those two situations played off each other? And like, um, you know, like when we're looking at like digestive, like if we have a digestive issue, is that why we see representations of that end up on the skin? And is there like a vice versa effect there? Like, if we get something like on our skin or where we expose our skin to something, could we assume that we would have the equal and maybe potentially opposite reaction in the gut, like what we would see the gut to the skin? Well, what we know is that the skin is an excretory organ. So if for some reason, toxins are not being released properly through the main channels of of um, release, like going through the GI tract, like exhalation, then or through the genitourinary tract, then they start to come out through the skin. So we know that's a thing. Um, and oftentimes that can be tied to an irritation in the gut lining, a dysbiosis of the microbiome and to autoimmune stuff because a lot of times the skin things that manifest are autoimmune like psoriasis. Um, so, so that's one piece. And then the other thing is by putting stuff on the skin, it's an excretory organ, but it's also uh, a sponge. So we absorb things through the skin. Anybody who has had any kind of hormonal therapy patch that they've worn will know the difference they feel and how effective that transdermal application is. There's um, an Ayurvedic physician who actually primarily gives out transdermal supplements so he can bypass the liver in the body's ability to absorb something um, so that he so it's not taxing the liver and we know from um, recent research that using patches on the skin for vaccines it, it actually creates a systemic reaction in the body just like you get if you did an injection so they're not they're not totally clear on how that's happening yet but they know that there's a communication between the skin and the gut microbiome that's directing the immune system so, so could we have like a theoretically like a multivitamin multi-mineral patch instead of ingesting you know like these um like powderized b caps uh, or like a like an IV, um, you know, intravenous, obviously, um, a vitamin and mineral concoction, and like what a lot of people do now, um, or just like a liquid blend. Is there? Can we do like a transdermal like option or variety of that? Or I know that there are some companies that are doing that. There is transdermal vitamin D. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if some vitamins and minerals absorb better than others. I would assume that would be the case. So. 
it, I'm not sure that you would be able to do like an entirely like full spectrum multivitamin, multimineral supplement transdermally, but um, it, it may be that if the technology is right, if the, if, if the um, delivery system is, is right, that that could be the case. Oh, well. um, which I guess kind of when we're talking about it, it always leads me back into like, obviously there's a lot of conjecture when it comes to like this thought process, but it's like, what's the most efficient way to get our vitamins and minerals now with like all like a lot of our fruits and vegetables being picked up well before they're ripe, being ripened in boxes, being ripened on store shelves. You know, obviously mm. all the chemicals that are associated, is it, is it um, um, contraindicated to be able to eat a vegetable that has such a high, you know, toxin rate in it, just be able to get the potential nutrients out of it, then the soil quality, all these things that kind of come into like our vitamins and mineral sources. Um, do you think that like we're at a stage now where like this is where our, our focus should be is getting some of our vitamin and minerals and these maybe new innovative ways through transdermal patches or um, like these IV drips or, you know, like, you know, just a really um, like good quality and good sourced um, powderized uh, concoction in a V cap. Like where's your, where's your thought process there? I don't know enough about the skin microbiome to know if that would be the optimal way to go. Um, Assuming that it's not harmful to do that, then I think for people that have inadequate digestive capacity, that it would be an option for sure, and a, and a viable option um, for vitamins and minerals, but also for potentially administering herbal products um, so that they can be absorbed better if the agni in the gut isn't working so well. But, you know, that depends too, because that, there's agni or there's, there's metabolism everywhere. So chances are if someone's like really low in it, then um, it would be systemic. Okay. So, um, yeah. And then I guess like this kind of like leads into the part of the conversation where we were having, um, you know, before we started recording about like the different diets. So like, Obviously, like what I, the way that I'm eating, like right now, and we're kind of just doing like a little bit of a longer study on this is um, predominantly um, like protein, like, <clears throat> like 80% protein is like about 20% plant-based fats, so like avocados, coconut, um, nuts, seeds, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, and like completely eliminating like fruits and vegetables altogether. But on the flip side of that is taking, you know, obviously total human by on it, which is just like, it is probably arguably like the best multivitamin multi-mineral um, concoction like on the market now you know taking supplementary vitamin d you know just like all these extra little things um to be able to increase the vitamin and mineral content so i'm not missing those um those micronutrients uh so with our gut being so highly adaptable and we've never had ever the opportunity to be able to consistently eat 30 different kinds of like you know um you know plant-based products you know, we've never had them even available like all year round. You know, there has been like some like cultures in the world that have, you know, predominantly ate like only meat or, you know, like organ meat, you know, nose to tail. Um, what, how is our gut not adaptable to all these different diets and still be extremely successful? Why do we feel like we need the gut to be able to offer like all these different fruits and vegetables? And I think it was 30. I mean, we, you and I may have talked about this before, I can't remember, but um, 30 different uh, fruits and vegetables or even like leafy greens or something within like a 10 day time period, I think is what we, or you know, maybe, but like, 
Like, why is that so critical now when we've never had that really, or like the vast majority of the planet has never really had that or has made it a focus in their diet, except for, you know, maybe in like TCM or like some traditional cultures. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, why is it, why is it so much different now? Like, why can my body not necessarily, or my gut completely adapt to like a carnivore style diet or a ketogenic style diet? What's your thoughts there? Well, your gut will adapt. Your gut microbiome will change its dominant enterotype based upon what you're eating. And then what they're finding is within six months after leaving that diet, it will go back to what it was before you went on it. Um, So you can completely begin to change your gut microbiome in a day, in a meal. Um, what they found is that there are two, so, so I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna generalize here because <clears throat> we can't really talk about Alaskan natives, for example. Yeah. Um, because their diet is, is completely something that is, is environmentally, it's like, they are part of a specific environment in which those foods are what is available and their body has adapted to, to extract what it needs to from that. I'm talking about the general Western population. Mm-hmm. So what they found is that there are two basic um, enterotypes. This can change. They originally had several on the list and then it got whittled down to two. One is an enterotype or a microbiome, a gut microbiome constitutional type that is dominant in people that eat mostly fat and protein um, that are getting a lot of that from meat. And then the other enterotype is the people that are dominant in plant-based foods. They're getting tons and tons of fiber from plant-based foods. And what they found is that these, the, the type that has the plant dominant diet has less inflammation systemically overall. So that if, if someone has say an autoimmune condition and their inflammatory markers are high, then their doctor may want to put them on more of a plant-based diet to bring down the inflammation. This is if they're taking into account the microbiome science. So, um, so, and they found that people that are the protein and fat high meat based eaters, if they go to a plant-based diet, they'll shift into that, more anti-inflammatory based uh, microbiome type. But if they go off of it, they will very quickly revert back. Oh, okay. So faster than the flip of that. So if somebody was like, um, say more plant-based and then went predominantly carnivore and went back, would that shift equally as be as fast as if it was the latter? I would imagine so. I'm not sure though. Yeah. So then what happens then like, 
because there's there's a massive part of the population in in um in the west that is constantly manipulating with their diet either good or bad like obviously like the yo-yo dieting is like probably the biggest diet that everybody in you know in western culture is on you know trying all these different fads successful unsuccessful going reverting back to like pretty much a lot of the stuff that's just unhealthy for our bodies in general um like what kind of discourse is that sending like into our micro gut I mean, even though like it can change extremely fast but there's obviously some point of homeostasis that our micro gut biome just wants to naturally achieve because it, it, it probably feels like it's the best or most efficient like in that state or, or our body recognizes that um does that in itself cause a lot of inflammation in the body when it's making those shifts and adjustments or is that something that we we know or we don't know at this point well i don't know that that's been studied but what i do know is that it ties back into what we're talking about closer to the beginning of this is and that's the confusion um, so that's one good way to confuse the body. In Eastern medicine, we're supposed to eat according to the seasonal foods that are available because that's what the gut has adapted to over millennia, is to recognizing what season it's in and what foods are becoming available. And it immediately starts changing the composition of the critters in the gut to accommodate that. Um, so when we're constantly messing with what we're eating and we're eating mostly winter foods in the summer and then we're switching every few weeks to a different regimen, it's confusing for the body because it's got to go, oh, it's going to go do this and then it's got to go do that and then these communities and then those communities. It's just like anything that we do that is irregular on a regular basis is not good for us. That's like a general overall way to look at it. Mm -hmm. So if you're going to do something, it's good to be consistent with it. And it's good to be in the parameters of natural law when you do it. So if you're going to say, choose a specific diet, choose one in which you're selecting foods that are seasonable, local, not processed. So the very basic, you know, guidelines that I outline in the book um, that are accessible to a lot of people. Anybody who has the ability to read that book or listen to this podcast probably has access to farmers markets or to at least being able to choose what foods are in season and eating those over others and not eating processed food. Now, when you were saying that I, and again, you might cover this in the book and this might be like widely known. I just haven't got there yet. Um, now, if there's a relationship between the skin and the gut, and we obviously know seasonal eating is, you know, great for the body. I think like that's another thing that's widely accepted. Do you think that as the season starts to change, that's when the skin is talking to the gut and that's when the gut starts to do its preparation work, knowing that the season is changing? Because you would think like the gut wouldn't really know because you'd still be eating the same foods because we would have this semi like cash or abundance of, you know, things that would be like from the summer as we're transitioning into fall. But the one way that the gut would know is because what the skin is being exposed to because temperature changes, you know, like in all these different fluctuations that are happening, like obviously it's not as 
um, the, the, the amount of daylight hours has changed, you know, like all these things are different now. Um, do you think like there's a relationship there where like the skin is talking to the gut saying like, Hey, we're coming up into fall that start to make these changes and the gut has a response to that. Like, do you think that there's any validity in that analysis? I think that that's possible. And I think another thing is, um, the body recognizing how many hours of sunlight there are in a day and and whether that's through the skin or through the the eyes and the pituitary you know whatever however that happens i think that that may be um a very large communicator to the gut um because if you look at the cycles according to ayurveda of the year it the main cycle is according to the sun and how strong it is in whatever hemisphere you're in. And so I think the body reacts to that. So the body is, is in the animal realm and animals are intrinsically just doing whatever comes natural and their bodies are adapting like to whether it's to just the cold or whether it's to this, the amount of sunlight, like the cues that the body is getting may be so subtle that, you know, we don't really know. See, and like the one thing you, as you were talking there too, I, that I was thinking is that, um, and again, this might be something that's widely talked about, except that I just don't know. But um, in Ayurveda, like traditional Chinese medicine, is there no like kind of outside of like say Japanese forest bathing or something like that? Is there no like quote unquote prescription for being outside? Because when all these principles were being adopted, people just generally were. So it's yeah. nothing that anybody really took into consideration saying like, I'm going right. to prescribe that you go outside and, you know, take your shirt off and wear some shorts. And just because like everybody was just kind of widely doing that. It's just only like a new problem that we face where, you know, people are predominantly like, locked inside for you know probably you know almost every like i've now recognized i know that we've talked about this a few podcasts ago where especially with COVID 19 there's even less frequency of people going outside between like just being at home and all the like, zoom calls being at home and work being at home and getting in the car driving somewhere or now you know maybe driving to the office coming back home and not wanting to go anywhere um it just seems like if we were to prescribe going outside you know, at any time, like this seems like the time where we should be offering cortical prescriptions like for that. But do we see anything in like traditional teachings where they were encouraging people to spend more time like outside or just really understanding the benefits of prolonged exposure of just being outside of these four walls? Well, like you said, I mean, people naturally spent more time outside historically. So um, I, I don't think that that there was a prescription for how long to be outside. But what I have seen is that there's a prescription for what to do outside at certain times of the day, oh. or there's a recommendation for what not to do. So you're not, according to the yogic teachings, you're not supposed to exercise in the sun at high noon. So the hottest parts of the day, you're not supposed to be in the sun exercising because it actually depletes the body. And so, and especially not to do yoga at that time. So in the morning, according to the yogic tradition, you're supposed to go out just as the sun is, is coming over the horizon and actually look at it. Oh. 
before it's like super like before it's bright just that glow you're supposed to see that with your eyes um that's a way to tonify yourself um and there's some research that's come out about absorbing vitamin d through your eyes as well so you know part of me wonders if that's part of the reason for that um so those are a couple of examples well yeah because that would just offer like a lot of things like what we know as as human beings is we just kind of need something to follow so you know whether they knew back then about absorbing vitamin d through the eyes but we just happen to know that now but it would be something for people to focus on every day where you'd be kind of like hedging the bet like in your favor you know just knowing that this if if you're following like a yoga uh, yoga practitioners you know like following is that this is something I want to do, something I want to prioritize. So you're more likely to do it and you're more likely to end up feeling like the benefits are being healthy, you know, from doing those things or just prioritizing things that are important to us that we know that bring balance and a sense of homeostasis to the body, you know, and then we have obviously all the um, genetic expressions that happen because of that, mm. which brings me into another thing that I wanted to talk about and this. So happens to just be the best time for this, that it's something that you've widely talked about it and I know how widely like accepted it is. And it's just the following is that there's like, you're just saying that you don't want to work out at noon because it's the hottest part of day. Um, like I know when it comes to like a lot of traditional modalities, like you don't want to sweat when you're working out. That kind of means that you've gone a little bit too far. Cause again, like you said, you've been depleting your body, um, you know, not huge temperature fluctuations or, you know, anything along those lines in regards because they're not depleting the body. And then obviously we were just talking about with like with vitamin D, you know, looking at the sun in the morning when it's coming up, you know, and then we know because it's a hormonal vitamin that we're getting a lot of positive effects in the body from you know different gene expressions. But we also know now that, you know, being in extreme cold and extreme heat and having like extreme belts of exercise also has another, um, you know, uh, genetic expression of like different genes that are released in the body. Um, like, how do you see like those two environments being compatible with each other? Like, do we need like a little bit of category A and a little bit of category B, or do you still lean towards that? We want to have a very um, like steady state to our day. Like when it comes to like our, our, our practices, our daily practices, or do you see benefits in like the Tabata sprints and like the hit style classes and CrossFit style workouts and cold water immersion and, you know, extreme sauna use, um, you know, like where, where do you sit with that? Just knowing that like we do get like heat shock protein release when we're exposed to extreme heat. Like obviously we know a lot of like Norwegian countries have been benefiting from that for, you know, centuries. And, you know, when it comes to like cold water immersion or just cold exposure, you know, like we know there's been a lot of cultures that have either dipped babies in cold water or leave them outside in the cold to be able to help boost their immune systems. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously with like more extreme style, like workout, we get a higher um, dopamine release, um, you know, which obviously combats things like anxiety and depression. Um, like, how do you feel about like those different juxtapositions of environments now knowing as much as what you know? Um, I think that some of that is very dependent on the person, mm -hmm. right? Like you can do the cold and the hot, but if you've got somebody who, um, is, I, I think that, I think that the, the, the guidance of, of Eastern wisdom is not something to ignore. I think that, and the other thing I think is that it's important to listen to your own body too. 
So if you notice you're doing something, whatever it is, sitting too long, and you're getting up and you feel achy or it's making you feel more lazy or feeling like sitting more, then you'll know that that's not ideal for you. So it's the same with anything, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, the, the cold exposure, the heat exposure, yes, like you mentioned in Norwegian cultures, those are um, therapeutic modalities. Um, and they're, and they're utilized in a, there's a specific like, like ritual, there's a specific like um, context for those things. Um, and so taking those things into account, the, the context that it's in, how it's administered, for whom it's administered at what time of life or whatever, those are all things to take into account. The, the most important thing I would think with some of the more extreme exercise regimes and um, the, the heat and the cold is the strength of the person that's doing it. And, um, and whether that's an appropriate thing for them at that time in their life or not, that's all, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, if you're 20 and you're doing that stuff, um, it might be different than for somebody who's 80, who's yeah. trying to do that. You know what I mean? Like that, it just comes down to common sense. And then, and then utilizing what, you know, you all know from the Eastern tradition that, that vast pool of wisdom that um, you can take into account with these things. So if you feel like, you know, you might be doing something that's kind of uh, not according to Eastern medicine recommendations, like drinking a glass of ice water, let's say, then what can you do to, to counteract that? Where's the middle path, right? Because none of us are perfect. We're all going to do stuff that we want to do, regardless of whether we feel or think or know it's right for us or wrong for us. So, um, so you just kind of do the best that you can. You take the middle path, maybe not have the ice water every single day for a month. Maybe have a cup of tea afterwards or wait an hour before you eat something until your insides warm back up. So um, your enzymes are working properly before you eat. So there's, there's things like that. Like you can take that wisdom and you can still utilize that um, regardless of some of the other things that you might be doing that aren't necessarily following its guidelines. Yeah. It's amazing how complicated our bodies are. So there's just, there's all of these different things to be able to factor in of like how to be able to get to like optimal health, you know, like what's, what's the best way to do it? Should I be able to do it? Cause the one thing that I was like, like typically like my body temperature runs hot all the time. Like I sweat like crazy. I sweat lots when I'm sleeping, when I'm working out, I sweat like a ton. I try to drink a lot of water to be able to help like compensate for that. Like I'm always very aware of like things I'm putting in my body to be able to compensate for the loss um, of like the extreme sweating. Right. But like, I know that it's easier for me to sit in extremely cold water than it is for me to sit in an extremely hot sauna. And it's yeah. just like, you know, I know it's because like, I just think I, my body becomes so overwhelmed so fast because I'm already running so hot. Um, yeah. so like when you're talking about like it's so individual to the person yeah that's one thing that is because I can sit in minus three degree water for like eight or ten minutes 
and I just get out because I feel like I shouldn't be sitting in there any longer than that. There's no, there's no research yet to know kind of where like the point of diminishing returns are. But if right. I'm sitting in a 220 degree sauna, um, like my mind is just blown within first five minutes. Like it's just, it's, it's so unreasonable to me that people can sit in a sauna at 220 degrees for an hour. Like it's just like I cook my ribs for three hours at 220 degrees. So it's like, you know, it's like people are sitting in the sauna for that. Like I can't even, cause like I start to fight the mental battle after five minutes for sure. Like every time. So like, again, like, like you said, just being, knowing your body and knowing your stages of life and just knowing how transient, like our optimal healthcare pursuit can be where we have to change those things and not just get stuck in the same routine. Cause that's simply something that we've always just done. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Good advice. Um, I want to bring into that Everybody Poops, the book that most uh, parents have read their kids and stuff. And, you know, because the one interesting thing that I thought was um, like in the book when you were specifically talking about like stool and, you know, stool treatments and how like it's gone through its like acceptance and taboo cycles, um, you know, kind of like I believe in Eastern and Western medicine, but like I think everybody kind of, well, not everybody people who are invested in staying current with um, the evolution of like healthcare know that um, like stool treatments are coming back. The face of it might look a little bit different than what it was uh, traditionally, but they are coming back like in their relevance now, um, you know, but where I look at it from the perspective, like, like, like people are ashamed to poop, you know, like that's why we have these books that we read our children called everybody poops. Like, you know, you're like, hope nobody goes into the bathroom after you've been in the bathroom, you know, you know, like try to time things properly. Like, you know, like we've just built such a stigma of being ashamed around, you know, going poop that, you know, but we, we completely lose the actual medicinal um, um, like theories and, you know, kind of conjecture around it because like there is a lot and there always has been a lot and we're getting there. But like, to me to be able to try to convince somebody that like you know you can use like a stool sample um, obviously the way that's prepared and handled but this could have like a medicinal um, benefit you know to somebody to try to convince them of that would be very difficult but it is something that we in western medicine is are coming back around to now uh, but maybe give us a little bit of history on what we used to do with stool in, in medic or for medication and like what we're doing now yeah, so way back when there was a physician named Gu Hong in China, and he would make a concoction called yellow soup. And it primarily consisted of the fecal matter of a healthy individual. And the primary reason he would use this is for patients who were pretty much dying of dysentery. Um, he would administer this to them and they would get better. And so after that, there was another Chinese doctor who um, expanded the repertoire of illnesses that this could be used for and was administering it for things, even nausea and vomiting, um, you know, drinking. And then he's the one who changed it to from the yellow soup to the golden soup or something like yeah. that. Yeah, he just like tried to make it a little fancier, I think, so it would be yeah. more acceptable um, because gold, of course, is a highly prized object. So, um, so yeah, so, uh, so that's how it started. And then uh, as far as we know, 
And there were soldiers in World War II who would use camel dung for dysentery-like disorders. And um, there, there are examples of using stool, of using um, urine therapy for various conditions. Um, I remember before I went to India, one of my friends told me, oh, if you get a cut, just find a cow patty, which is cow poop, and just put it on there because it's highly antimicrobial and it will help it to heal so it doesn't get infected. And, um, you know, I never did that. <laughs> but that's a wide, for people that are in India, that's a pretty widely known thing that can be done. And so we know that there are antimicrobial properties to um, certain animals' fecal matter. And then we know today that we can use what's called fecal microbiota transplantation. Um, here in the US, it's legal to use that as prescribed by a doctor and administered by a doctor in hospital or clinic setting to treat C. difficile infection. So C. diff is something that can arise oftentimes as a result of heavy antibiotic usage and it results in a dysentery-like disorder. The person basically poops out everything that goes in immediately, and they have life-threatening diarrhea. So, um, so fecal microbiota transplantation can be administered um, in different ways. Um, I know oftentimes it will be through the anus. They can inject it or use a colonoscopy to administer it. Um, and then there are dried encapsulations of stool that can be used. And outside of this country, outside of the United States, anyways, there, is, there are centers that use FMT to treat a range of, uh, of ailments and of symptoms associated with those ailments. Um, anything from a physical abnormality to um, mental and emotional imbalances, and they're doing it successfully. So like, what is, what's the process or like, you know, like how and why is it strictly just like the bacteria that ends up in the fecal matter? Like, why does this bacteria end up there? Like, why wouldn't our body then filter that out on its own? Um, you know, maybe you start with like, like, what is fecal matter? Like, why well, is it brown? You know, like, why is it? And like the difference, I know that um, I think there was like eight different references into like the different types of stool. Um, I think it was eight. I, I'm not too sure in that diagram that was in your book. Um, yeah. Like what is, what is healthy uh, stool look like? And it seems like healthy stool, there's two examples of that. And then the one example of like loose stool. But the one thing that I noticed is that they, they're pretty close to the same. Mm -hmm. um just like physically like or like visually looking at them um you know, like what are what are people like for one again like i said like what is in fecal matter like what is it uh, what should you be looking for you know i'm just kind of maybe i know okay. i asked you like 15 questions there but that's maybe right, that's right. work your way through yeah so um so the first thing that i wanted to say is that some scientists are calling the microbiome an organ. Oh. And I've seen it described in such a way as that with FMT or fecal microbiota transplantation, it's the only transplant that you can do non-surgically. And that you're actually, it's considered by some scientists to actually be an organ transplant. Oh, wow. Because you're taking 
the stool that has all this stuff in it, it's got microbes of various kinds. It has bacterias and viruses and funguses, fungi and yeasts and archaea and, and they're all in community. And that healthy community or, or what's deemed to be healthy right now from a person that's quote unquote healthy is able to repopulate the gut and crowd out the pathogenic microbes that are potentially causing an infection or a mental emotional imbalance in another person that has a dysbiotic microbiome. So the, the fecal matter of the donor is able to crowd out the, the pathogenic microbes that have overrun the beneficial bacteria in the other person's gut. So that's how that's working. Would we get a rejection if, it, if they consider to be like an organ transplant? Could it be like a rejection like you can with like blood and other organs where it's not compatible with another person? Like, uh, I don't think they've gone that far as to say that at this point because it is so it is so plastic, it is so changeable, the gut microbiome, that when a healthy one is introduced to an ailing one, it's something that is just able to flourish. The, the healthy microbial uh, donor material is, is able to populate, colonize, flourish in the gut of the diseased um, organ. Well, that would go to show me then, like if I had to just quickly offer like theory to that, like it, it would go to show like the importance of like the body wanting like that, that micro gut biome to be um, at, at a point that it deems to be healthy, that if you could offer such a small sample into that environment um, and it kind of completely take over from this like dysbiotic system that's already running um, and there'd be like kind of no matter what, at this point in time, what we know, like no matter what, um, there'd be a only positive gain from that. And that's not something that you ever really typically see in any other respect of, in the body that there's usually more pushback than there is just global acceptance. Right. Um, but again, that would show me that like how much the body thinks that this is like the epicenter for health. Um, if there's just a, such a quick latching on to like wanting this healthy bacteria and these microbes in there. Right. Cause ideally it's, it's that principle that we're wired to heal. Mm -hmm. And so in the presence of being able to do so, it will. And, um, and the things that we're administering, and, and people will have them in multiple doses. I'm not saying one dose and it's done. It's multiple um, administrations of it. But, um, you know, the body recognizes it. The body recognizes those strains of microbes as being beneficial. So it's like they're welcomed with open arms, like you're saying. Mm -hmm. And so why wouldn't we try, is it strictly just efficiency or how new this is and not creating like a synthetic version like of a stool sample? Because if we're looking at like, or is there just, I, I would assume there would be trillions of different like viruses. There's no, there's no way, they don't even know everything that's in them. Yeah. We don't even have the technology to evaluate all the viral specimens in yeah. a stool sample. We don't even, it's called the virome. 
all the viruses in the body, beneficial viruses, we don't even have the technology to do that yet. Yeah. So that's why like having a stool sample done, it, it, it gives you a, a little snippet of information, but we don't even completely know like how to deal with that. Yeah. I mean, some people, there might be to some extent treatment available based on like stool analysis, but it is not the entire picture. Mm -hmm. Well, it's just, it's again, it's like one of those things where it's, you know, if we just had our society more looking at just trying to focus on like one thing instead of having like all these pioneers, like, like we, we have, our resources are spread so thin trying to conquer, you know, too many Mount Everests in the mm -hmm. body. You know, you think in like, I think right now we're kind of going through some of that, like where like the world is kind of collectivized under like COVID-19 to try to be able to like figure out like a vaccination for this and saying, well, you know, even when we do have like a world army trying to fight this, like obviously a lot of these big um, like biomedical companies, like the wheels are still coming off the bus because every, every week now it seems like another company is pulling up the shelves or like the WHO's saying like, you know, like do not take this because there's no like positive gain, you know, from taking it. Um, that we still can't, but like you think like these things, even like with like the micro, micro gut biome or like stool sampling, you know, like if we just actually put in a concerted effort, like if it is widely accepted, like this is kind of like an, a known epicenter for health in the body. And, you know, it's like, like what we know, like there's no point in taking a Tylenol for a headache if we don't know why we're getting a headache. Like let's understand why we're getting a headache instead of taking the Tylenol. So you think like how many things we're doing and offering the body that we wouldn't normally have to be offering it if we just knew or understood more, you know, about like, you know, um, micro gut biome health or like gut health in general, you know, and just taking things like stool sampling uh, or, you know, like, um, like stool treatments and stuff and offering them to other people, like how, how simple that is, you know, and again, like you highlighted, like this is something that's been happening for thousands of years. This isn't something that we're just doing now. You know, but we've just been spread so thin and actually trying to figure out like what can offer optimal health to our bodies, you know, because we just have, again, like a thousand different things in the body that we're focused on. And we don't know, even if we were to focus everything on the microbiome and the gut, for example, we still, it's going to be years or decades before we know everything that's in the gut, everything it influences in the body how it's influencing what it's influencing in the body, how it's interacting with each other, the metabolites it's producing. I mean, it's just mind blowing all the ramifications of it and all the treatments for various diseases that could be um, made based on knowing that information about the microbiome and how the microbiome changes in different illnesses and what those changes are and how we can correct it. So there's a lot of excitement in the scientific community because they're seeing that potential, mm -hmm. but that potential is pretty far off for most of us. And um, that's why I'm so adamant about taking into account the basic lifestyle advice from Eastern wisdom, because it is continuously affirmed through scientific studies mm -hmm. and things like circadian science, Ayurveda and Chinese medicine said that thousands of years ago. Um, it, and not just that, all kinds of things, it's stuff about the gut microbiome, 
there have been words for it in, in um, the Eastern languages for millennia. So why wait like a thousand more years until we have the technology and we figured all this stuff out if we last that long? Um, why, wait, <laughs> like, <laughs> why wait until then yeah. to implement this simple, simple, like some of the simple guidance from Eastern wisdom that, like I said, is constantly affirmed one thing after another, after another, after another um, by Western science. Yeah. And, you know, like, and the one thing that I, I always say to people, you know, like I feel um, if a body was to be studied about what's going on, because, you know, like I'm in, like every time, like, like I'm in the back country, you know, like there's always like a portion of it where like, I'm changing outside or like, you know, like if I'm by myself, you know, like I'll just gear down and just lay in the grass, like in the sun, you know, and like, obviously like I'm intaking like a lot of um, like microbes, you know, because that I like, I'm always in like, like lake water or stream or river water that's off a glacier, you know, if a glacier is melting, like I'll just fill up my water bottle and drink it straight off the glacier, which there's trillions of viruses and it's something they study in Canada and Whistler like there's a lot of scientists all around the world that come study our glaciers because they're studying the different viruses that are like just trapped in these glaciers and stuff and like you know yeah. and I've been doing that for 37 years so it's like I couldn't even imagine like the zest pool of crazy stuff that's probably floating around in my body because um and I've I've never got sick from you know like drinking any of the water bathing like just experimenting with eating like just different things like in the backcountry obviously I don't just eat everything that I see but you know like I'm entering a lot of foreign stuff like into my body um right. so, like I just like I wonder what like the net benefit or detriment um there is but the one thing that I've always said um to like most people if you specifically even like identify my glomerulonephritis, nephritis you know something that's not supposed to be curable and, you know, for my kidneys, there's no representation of glomerulonephritis like in my kidneys at all. There's something that has to be happening in my body by living my life this certain way that would even offer an environment like that to be, to exist because it's not typical or natural that, uh, that the body could heal the kidneys from a condition like glomerulonephritis because it's just not even heard of. But like, is it these things? I don't know. Could I say that it probably has something to do with it? It kind of would have to, I would say, because it's just, it's an abnormal activity. But, um, you know, like, like we were talking about before, just we've steered so far away from all these natural environments where people would just be doing those things because you'd be thirsty and there'd be this river. So you probably would drink out of it, you know, like, yeah. you know, like you would feel like you need to, have, to bathe off. So you would just hop in, you know, like that water might be warm. It might be really cold, you know, like you know, they just all these different situations where our bodies would be exposed to like our skin intaking these different microbes and how those have probably helped us get to this point. You know, it's just, we've massively curbed that. And now we're trying to get back to it. And you know, like you alluded to there, it's like, why do we have to wait another thousand years to new, know things we knew 5,000 years ago? Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And my guess with, with your, um, with that water consumption is that it could be diversifying your microbiome. And there is some argument about what a healthy microbiome actually is, but one of the um, leading theories for what a healthy microbiome is, is a diverse microbiome. So the more diverse it is, the more species of beneficial microbes you house, 
And then if you get in contact with a pathogenic microbe, then there's more uh, that's able to amass, you know, a fight against it um, so that it can't replicate in your system. In which we've like exposure theory is something that we've known for a long time is like having all the kids who have chicken pox get together and have a chicken pox party or, you know, like herd immunity now, like some communities are doing with like COVID-19. Like, like we do know having like exposure to things, actually like the net gain and net benefit of that is positive, you know, usually versus negative, right? Yes, but exposure isn't just about getting the illness. It's about getting the beneficial microbes. So yes, with chickenpox, that's a really good example because um, you, you know you're eventually going to get it and it's dangerous if you don't get it when you're little, if you get it when you're, I mean, at least before there was a vaccine for it. Um, and so, you know, parents wanted their kids to just get it, get it when all the other friends are sick, get it out of the way. And, um, but with COVID, there's a herd immunity thing that's not necessarily true because yes, there's some evidence that there is a T3 immunity to it to some extent, um, but the antibodies in all the studies I've seen have shown that they vanish in a few months, so like two or three months. So, so there, that's kind of a misnomer. So then that means that if it sticks around, you could theoretically get it again next year, just like a flu. But um, but for a different reason than the flu. But anyway, so another part of that exposure thing is that the, the, the theory used to be that you want to get exposed to all of these pathogenic things and get sick over and over again. Oh, that's great. They're sick. They're going to have a great immune system, you know, as kids are growing up. But really what we're supposed to be doing is exposing them to a diversity of microbes so that they're getting more beneficial microbes because that is what trains the immune system. And that is what makes a healthier adult. Yeah. Well, and again, too, it's like, you know, then we only know what we knew then, but it's not what we know now. But like, like you said, like, it just like having like that, uh, like abundance and offering like that opportunity to ourselves. But again, like it just comes down to like what you've always said and something I always try to tell people. That's why we always know like just variety and like consistency to variety in all regards to your life, not just diet and nutrition not just exercise you know but like like occupational you know like social networks you know social settings like all those things like the more variety we can offer ourselves like it just as as we know more we just know that that is probably arguably one of the most beneficial things because the more different environments we get exposed to like that's where we're going to build up you know like immunity and have those different microbes in our bodies and have a you know like a healthier immune system and a healthier micro gut biome yeah yeah Good. Maybe that's a great place to be able to, uh, to end up uh, quickly before we end up to tell, tell me how your book signing went. Oh, it was, so it was pretty much, it was more the, um, the book launch. Yeah. And so I'm going to um, upload that to my website sometime this week. Cause it just became available, but it's on YouTube. If you want to watch through Northshire bookstores, YouTube, yeah. page or whatever it's called um and can you so send me a link to it so i can attach it to this uh sure. this, to the podcast and stuff in case yeah. You want to watch yeah. It. yeah yeah um and so yeah so that went well yeah. i imagine it was a little bit different with with all these protocols like what changed because of uh like COVID 19 protocols or like was anything different than what it was uh for your last book or yeah, online uh, it was like this i sat here and did it oh really <laughs> uh -huh. oh interesting yeah, so I just had, it was an interview with Benita Zahn, who's an anchor on WNYT, 
And he has a, um, a digital health magazine through WNYT's site called Health Beat. So we had a little chat the week before and, um, and then she promoted the Northshire event for me during that. And then we had the, it was a half an hour interview with, with her and then a half an hour Q&A. Yeah. So people were able to write in and call in and it was moderated by Northshire bookstore. And um, for anyone in the Northeast, they're pretty familiar with Northshire. There, there's uh, a, a physical location in Manchester, Vermont, and one in right here in Saratoga Springs, right down the street. So for the first book, I had the book launch at the Northshire in Saratoga and there were 60 some odd people there, as many as they could cram upstairs. Yeah. And um, we, I sat downstairs afterwards and signed books and it was awesome. It was a lot of fun. We yeah. had hors d'oeuvres and everything, you know, got yeah. dressed up, all that stuff. And this time um, it was through Zoom. So, and it was moderated by, by uh, Rachel and David at Northshire. So it was nice. Little, little different feel. You don't gain that energy from, <laughs> from the people and, you know, just, I guess, kind of like what we all would think, like, you know, through like a book launch and a book signing, you know, where you're down like this store and people are coming and waiting in line. Like, it just, yeah. like, did it feel like there was any component that was missing? Or like, would you prefer to be able to have that or it was like the Zoom? Um... No, I'm comfortable with Zoom. I like to be able to see the tiles and see everybody's faces and, um, because to me, it's not like totally different than being in person to do a talk because if you can see the people, then, um, you know, you can still read off the crowd just like you yeah. would if you were in person. Of course, they're much more attentive in person because they're not like, you know, in their house, you know, snacking yeah. ice cream or whatever. <laughs> but um it was, you know, it was really nice to do it in person the first time. I would prefer that, of course, because it's more like an event. And then they had to change the format because it's not in person. So they made it an interview this time. So you had to choose somebody, you know, when they were organizing, they said, please find somebody to do the interview for you. Um, and so that's, that's the way it shifted. And then, it, you know, we still had the Q&A at the end, which was good because I like to do that too. Well, now you've got to experience both so you know um, which one to appreciate more when things get back to however they're going to get back once we, we make our through this COVID-19 thing, right? So Yes, absolutely. For book number three. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> okay, have a wonderful day. Thank you, you too. Thank you so much.